Amen and amen. Thank you for your wonderful singing this morning. You know, I wish you guys could hear out there what we hear up here when you sing well and when you sing loud. It's just a, it's a wonderful expression of, of the Lord's people lifting up their voices in and, and unison and harmony and just a wonderful expression of the glory of our God and and um, it's, just, uh, it's just amazing. So thank you so much for singing well this morning. You have no idea uh, how much that blesses me when, when you do that. Gets me ready to preach. And so anyway, let's open our Bibles to the book of Matthew chapter 7 once again this morning. And as last week, if you need to use the Bible in the pew in front of you, you can find that on page 965. Leading into 966, Matthew chapter 7. We're going to be beginning in verse 13 this morning. And uh, it's, uh, we're just going to read the first two verses. We're going to be looking at Matthew 13, really Matthew 13 all the way through verse 27 through the end of the chapter. We're going to be covering all of that here this week and next week. But we're really just going to kind of introduce it this morning. And, uh, and then we'll get into really the, the bulk of the passage next week and just kind of give it a, a good once-over, a good uh, overview. And, uh, and then at that point, we'll be done with the Sermon on the Mount. So uh, we've spent several weeks in it, and uh, it has been such a blessing to be able to go back through it. This is the second time I've preached through the Sermon on the Mount since I've been here at Calvary. And and I'm, I am convinced that every Christian should read at least one uh, book on the Sermon on the Mount every year. Uh, it's just such wonderful things that Jesus has to say, a pocket guide to Christian living. And so, but let's, uh, let's we're just going to read verses 13 and 14 this morning, Mark, if you don't mind. So let's go ahead and stand together and let's read these two verses together uh, from the board, if you will. Enter now by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let me ask you a question. How many of you um, back in the 80s, maybe you're growing up in the 80s or, or maybe you were uh, much further along than you care to admit in the 80s, but uh, how many of you used to watch a little show called Growing Pains? You Remember that show, some of you? Okay. And you remember, you know, I thought it was actually Mike Cleaver, but the Cleavers belonged to the Leave it to Beaver crowd, right? So I was actually wrong about that. His name was Mike Seaver. Uh, the guy that played Mike Seaver today is probably one of the most effective and orthodox, thoroughly orthodox, uh, evangelical Christians in Hollywood. His name is Kirk Cameron, and he has uh, played in a lot of Christian movies. And, and of course, his sister is also doing very well, uh, Candace Cameron something, Burr, I think. You ladies who watch The View, you may, you may remember her. Um, but I remember one of the best illustrations I ever heard on sharing the gospel of all people came from Kirk Cameron, and it was in a chapel service from Southwestern Seminary uh, that he gave this illustration. And he said, imagine that you are getting on an airplane, and as you are walking in, the stewardess 
or maybe the steward or the steward eye or whatever they call those fellows, they, uh, they, they ask you, would you like to purchase a parachute? And you say, well, why would I want a pair? You know, the whole point is to say on the plane, why would I want to buy a parachute? And the stewardess tells you that the, uh, the reason you'd want a parachute is because if you purchase this parachute, it's going to make your flight a lot better. It's going to give you security, but it's also going to make your flight easy and comfortable. And it's going to make you uh, everything, it's going to give you everything out of this flight that you have ever wanted. It's going to give you more feet space. I mean, how many of us, when we fly, do we want that, right? So it's going to give you more foot space. It's going to give you, it's going to give you all the comfort in the world, and it's going to make you on top of everything you want to be. And you say, well, sign me up. And so you grab the parachute, and he helps you put it on. And the first thing you notice is how, is how bulky it is, and it's heavy. And then you sit down in the seat and it doesn't even allow you to sit in the seat properly. So you're uncomfortably hunched over like, like you just can't sit up straight and you can't get comfortable. And then on top of that, to add insult to injury, everyone around you starts making fun of you because you were dumb enough to buy a parachute. Now, let me ask you a question. What is your opinion of that parachute gonna be? You're gonna start to resent that, aren't you? You're gonna, in fact, I dare say you're probably gonna hate it. And more than likely, before too long, you're going to take it off and get fed up with it. And you're gonna be very angry at the one who sold you the parachute, right? So that's the first example. Imagine a second example where you're getting on a plane and just in the same way, the gentleman says, sir, would you like to purchase a parachute? And you say, why do I need a parachute? He says, because when you get to 15,000 cruising altitude, we're gonna make you jump off. Now, you buy the parachute. And this time, though, it's just as bulky, it's just as heavy, it's just as awkward, and maybe there's even just as many people making fun of you, but all of a sudden, your whole attitude toward the parachute has changed, hasn't it? Why? It doesn't matter anymore how many people are making fun of you. In fact, you're probably begging them to get their own parachute because you know they're gonna go off the plane at 15,000 feet. You, are, you don't care about the discomfort anymore. You don't care about the bulkiness anymore. You don't even care how much you're being mocked at anymore or any of that because you know that once that plane, and by the way, you're gonna be eternally grateful to the one who sold it to you, right? Because you know when that plane gets to 15,000 feet and you're forced to jump off the plane, that parachute, no matter how much it makes your life uncomfortable right now, that parachute is going to save your life. And that's the illustration that, that Mr. Cameron gave. And, and unfortunately, in many churches today, the gospel that we present is much like the first plane. Take the gospel. It'll make your life better. It will make you comfortable. It will give you ease. It will, it will make you rich even in some circles. It will give you everything you've ever dreamed. And in so many places today in evangelism, that gospel has become nothing more than life enrichment. And this has even crept into many churches we call SBC churches I remember watching a sermon from a church in Florida and, and the sermon, and I'm using that word very generously, but the sermon was all about the importance of physical exercise. 
And there was even an interview with the local gym owner where the pastor who was, you know, he likes to wear these tight t-shirts, you know, he's all bulging, you know, kind of like me. And um, why are you laughing at that? So anyway, uh, but uh, anyway, he's, uh, and, and he even gave a video interview with the, with the uh, owner of the gym. I heard of another church in New York that uh, someone went to visit and, and the sermon was all about being prepared for the next earthquake. And all of these kinds of things. Uh, during COVID, as a matter of fact, I got all kinds of literature from the health department and from all the different government agencies saying, these are the facts, these are the science that you need to share with your church. I can only presume, I don't know when they wanted me to share it, I can only presume during the sermon time. And, and that's what many churches are presenting as the gospel today that our message is nothing more than life enrichment. That the gospel is nothing more than life enrichment. And beloved, if that is true, then it makes sense that Christianity is only one of many options, doesn't it? Doesn't that make sense? I mean, you can enrich your life in all kinds of different ways. It really just kind of depends on what you're looking for. It kind of depends on what you want. You can go to any Barnes and Noble or Books of Million or, or any bookstore and you can find, or you don't even have to make that kind of effort today. Just get online and you can find some blogger who's gonna tell you what you wanna know, what you wanna hear. You can do all of that. If Christianity is no different than any other way or anything else, you can get that from any places. But beloved, if, if our gospel, if our message is something more than that, then there is only one name under heaven by which we must be saved. And that brings us to our text this morning. Matthew chapter seven. And my prayer this morning is that you will run to that name, that you will depend upon that name, and that you will enter into the gate, the one and only name by which we must be saved. Jesus is coming to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. I shared with you that week that really verses 13 through 27 are the conclusion of this sermon. And it revolves around this first command that we see here in verse 13, enter into the narrow gate or enter by the narrow gate. And I want you to understand that that is not just a suggestion. That is not just good advice. That is a command for every person on earth earth, that we are commanded by our Savior, by our Lord and King, to enter into by the narrow gate. That is not just a good advice. The Sermon on the Mount, as he is bringing this to a conclusion, beloved, you need to understand that the Sermon on the Mount is the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived. But it was not only preached to be studied, even though it was. It was not only preached to be analyzed. It was not only preached to be, uh, it was not only preached to be dissected. It was not only preached to be, uh, to celebrate even its literary qualities, but the Sermon on the Mount was preached in order that we might respond, that we might answer in faith, that we may obey its commands and that we may live by its principles. Jesus preached this sermon to be lived. 
And so as he brings the sermon to a conclusion, he starts off his conclusion. What's the main point of everything we've said from the first sermon that we preached, the beginning that we preached the Sermon on the Mount, all the way through, the point of everything we said comes down to this simple command, enter by the narrow gate. So in order to find true life, we must enter by the narrow, difficult way. That's where true life is found. Now that brings up a couple of questions, doesn't it? Number one, what does it mean to enter by the narrow gate? That's a metaphor that Jesus is using. We need to define the metaphor and kind of talk about what it actually means. But then the second question is, how do we do that? How do we enter into the narrow gate? And so this week, we're gonna be talking about what that means, and then next week, we're gonna bring it all to a conclusion to show you how. Really, really, verses 15 through the end of the Sermon on the Mount is all about what it means to enter into the narrow gate. It means beware of false preachers. It means to know Christ, and it means to listen and do his words, building your house on the rock. So that's all what it means to enter into the gate, but this morning we're just simply gonna look at this metaphor and talk about what it means. And so Jesus really just gives us two options here. Number one, we see that in order to find true life, we must leave the broad and easy way. We must leave the broad and easy way. Now, look at verse 13 again. I want you to look at these words very carefully. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter, it, who enter by it are many. I want you to notice here that Jesus is really not presenting this as a choice. He's not giving you kind of the, uh, oh, what's the guy that used to say, um, door one, door two, door three, and and now there's kind of the problem, you know, the mathematical problem that we've got a couple of math geniuses back there who can figure it out. But, uh, you know, the door number one, door number two, door number three, what was that guy's name? Uh, Wally Hall? Monty Hall, you know, the Monty Hall problem, right? And so that's not what Jesus is doing here. Entering by the broad gate and the easy way is not actually presented as a choice here. The command is enter by the narrow gate. That's the command. And so the broad gate is not even really an option for us, but it is where so many find themselves. It is so many where they are. This goes all the way back in scripture, Genesis chapter two, verses 16 and 17. God has always offered the choice between life and death to his people that he has created Genesis chapter two, verses 16 and 17. The day that you shall eat of the fruit, you will most surely die. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, at the end of all of the law that has been given, Moses presents this before the people. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, beginning in verse 15, he says, see, I have set before you today life and good, death and and evil, and as you read on to verse 19, he tells them there, therefore choose life in order that you and your offspring may live. Choose life, I've set before you life and death. Choose life, choose life. 
Even the, even, the, even the prophets get into this. Jeremiah 21.8. Jeremiah is told to tell the people that I have set before you today life and death. Wisdom literature even says, Proverbs chapter four, verse 12. Many of you probably know this. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Jeez. God has always set the choice before humanity, choose life or death. And now Jesus is doing the same thing. Beloved, listen, it is truly a matter of life and death. This is not just good advice, even though it is. This is not life enrichment. This is life giving. It is literally a matter of life and death. And so let's define these terms. What do we mean by the broad gate offering an easy life? What do we mean by that? You know, there's really no deeper illusions here. There's no, there's no uh, pictures here other than what we see. A broad gate is simply that. It's a very wide gate that allows a lot of people to come in at once. If you've ever rode the elevator in the Empire State Building, those mugs can hold probably, what, 75 people? Something like that. I mean, we're talking like a huge elevator, right? And it's, and it's open and it's wide and it carries you where you wanna go. It invites everybody to come in. Well, almost everybody, as we'll see. But it's a gate that leads to a way that is easy. Or if you're using the NASB, it says broad, a broad way. The idea is that of an open field or, or an open sea even is how it's used in some places. And that there is plenty of room, there's comfort, there's ease, there's everything you want. You can chase your own star. You can have it your way today. You can do all of it the way you want to do. Promises that you can have it all. The idea of comfort, the idea of, of pleasure. In fact, uh, maybe you've heard the old quote by Daniel Boone that if I can see the smoke from my neighbor's chimney, then they live too close. It's kind of that idea, that, that comfort and that ease and that, that there is no one there that I need to worry about. By the way, isn't that the promise that the serpent gave at the beginning? I mean, think about it. What did he say? Your God, that God up there, that mean old God, he's holding out on you. You're not gonna die. God knows in the day you eat the fruit, you'll be just like him. He's holding out blessings. He just, he's just jealous. He's such a mean God. So they ate the fruit and look what happened. Same as it says here in verse 13. The way is broad. It gives you all the promises. It welcomes all. It gives you everything you ever want. It promises everything you ever want. And yet, where does it lead? It leads to destruction. That word destruction is the same word we find in Revelation 20, verse 15, by the way. Same word that Revelation uses to describe this, for if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he is thrown into the lake of fire, always dying, never dead. Eternal wrath, eternal punishment, destruction. It promised you the world, but it brings you death. And I mentioned this before, it's, it's not really presented as a choice. The assumption here is that every single one of us are on this road at the beginning. 
Every single one of us. There are many who enter by it, is what Jesus says. There are many who will go through this gate and there are many who will fall for the false promises of the age. They will enter this gate and they will come to destruction thereby. And so that's where we end up. That's where we are. Let's remind ourselves of some truth that we already know. And I want you to turn to Romans chapter one. Romans chapter one. What is the broad way that we're referring to here? What are we talking about? And this is something that here at Calvary, I know I've preached this before, you are very familiar with these concepts. But let me stir up in you again, just by way of reminder, what Paul is talking about in Romans one through three. It presents two kinds of people. Remember Tertullian, the church father, he said that just as Christ was crucified between two thieves, so also there are two thieves that will rob you of the gospel. And what are they? What are they? Look in verse 18 of chapter one. Those who exchange the truth of God for a lie. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness who, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They exchange the truth of God for a lie. And look at verse 24. God turns them over to the lust of their hearts. In verse 26, they're, they're turned over to dishonorable passions. In verse 28, they're turned over to a debased mind, Right? And all of this culminates in verse 29. It says here, they are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. These are the heathen. These are the irreligious they have rejected God. They have chosen to live in active rebellion against God. They live in the ditches of society, which have now become the celebrated portions of our society. They, they are the ones who actively and totally rebel against God openly and defiantly. And we look at them and they say, oh, that's terrible. That is the broad way, isn't it? That's the broad way. But then Paul goes on in chapter two. And you look at chapter two and who's he talking about here? Well, look in verse 17. These are people who call themselves a Jew. They rely on the law. Verse 18, they know his will. They approve what is excellent. Verse 19, they got, they're a guide to the blind. They're a light in the darkness. Verse 20, Look on and says, they're instructors of the foolish, teachers of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Who are these people? Oh, these are the good ones. These are the good ones. These are the children who grew up in Sunday school. These are the children who know right from wrong. These are the children who vote their values. These are the children who are the best of society. These are the children who make straight A's on every grade. These are the children who, who obey their parents at every step of the way. 
These are the children who call upon the name of the Lord in order to show what good kids they are. These are the ones who are good, upstanding citizens. They are, they are moral people. They are people who anybody would look at them and say, oh yeah, that's a good person. And you'd almost be tempted to say that Romans chapter one is the broad gate, Romans chapter two is the narrow gate. But that's not what Paul says. That's not what Paul says. You see, because in, ver in chapter three, when he comes to the conclusion of it all, what does he say in verse 10? He says the conclusion of all of it is there is none righteous, no, not one. And he goes on, he says, no one understands. Watch this, no one seeks for God. No one does. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There is none who does good, not even one. Beloved, make no mistake here, we are not talking about a contrast between good, productive citizens and the worst of society. We are not talking about the difference between those who are religious and those who are not. We're not talking the difference between those who are good and talking about those who are bad. We are talking about the contrast between divine righteousness and human righteousness. We are talking about grace versus law. We are talking about divine forgiveness and Christ's righteousness applied to you and those who think that they can get in by their own bootstraps. We're talking about those who are fully dependent upon God for their forgiveness of sins and righteousness and those who say, I'm okay, I'm a good person. We are talking the difference between God's righteousness and our own self-righteousness. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a tax collector, one was a Pharisee. Which one needed to be forgiven? Both of them. Which one was forgiven? The one who cried out to God for mercy, recognizing that he was a sinner. There are two thieves who will rob you of the gospel. They are they are religion and irreligion. They are, they are goodness and badness. They are heathenism and hypocriticalism. They are legalism and license, whatever name you wanna put on it. If you are trusting in anything other than a new life given to you by Jesus Christ, then you are on the broad way. And that's why it includes all. There's lots of ways to be on the broad way. There's room for everybody. Except those who believe in Jesus Christ. Except those who believe in Jesus Christ. So therefore, beloved, if we want true life, we must avoid the broad and easy way, but we must enter by the narrow and difficult way. Enter by the narrow and difficult way. I took a little too much time on that last point, so let's just look at this very quickly. He says, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And again, there's no deeper illusions here. There's no deeper pictures here. The words are very simple. The gate is small. 
The way is hard. The gate is incredibly small. In fact, there is only one way. And it is through a person. Jesus himself says in John chapter 10, verses nine and 10, look what he says here. I am the door. That's, that's not the same word, but the concept is the same. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Watch this. The thief comes, that's the false prophets we're gonna talk about next week. The thieves come only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it more abundantly. Christ himself is the door and those who come to the Father through Christ find pasture, they find life, and they find life more abundantly. Beloved, this is the call to salvation. This is the call to new life. But it's also a call to discipleship. Beloved, understand something. Jesus does not call us merely to a one-time decision. He doesn't call us merely to a one-time walking of the aisle, repeat after me prayer, and then I go on and live my life as if I would anyway. He goes on and he says, yes, the gate is small, and we get that down, but he goes on to say, and the way is difficult. He doesn't call us to a decision. He calls us to discipleship. He calls us to a life that is becoming progressively more and more like himself and make no mistake, that will be difficult. Now, I've heard some people, uh, sometimes they, you know, they come from kind of the, the King James only crowd and, and they don't like how the modern translations word this. They say, you know, well, the way is not difficult, it's narrow. I want you to understand what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying it's difficult because the road itself is difficult. That's not what he's saying here. In fact, beloved, make no mistake, discipleship, the way of the Christian life, it's not easy. It's not difficult. It is impossible apart from a new life in Jesus Christ. It's impossible apart from grace. You can't do that on your own. That's the broad way. That's the whole point of what we're talking about. Yet Jesus says the way is difficult. What's he talking about? Well, he says this in several places. Luke chapter 21, and I won't, just, you can just write this down for lack of time. Luke 21, 12 through 19. I'll just read you a couple of things that he says here. He says that, and you will hear of wars and tumults and do not be terrified. He goes on, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, great earthquakes, etc. And before all of this happens, watch this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. Look in verse 16. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. Some of you, they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish by your endurance. You will gain your lives. Philippians chapter one, verse 29 says this. He says, for you, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, that's the gate, but also suffer for his sake. That's the way. And make no mistake, if you want to live a godly life, you will face pressure. You will face persecution. It might even cost you your life. 
We've had a reprieve from that in our nation, praise the Lord. But that reprieve may be coming to an end. I don't know that we'll ever get to a point where they're just gonna drag us out in the streets and burn us like they did in Rome. I don't know if we'll ever get to that point. But make no mistake, Christians are portrayed as bigots, haters, ignorant, intolerant. By the way, did you notice how during COVID it was all the churches that were blamed for spreading the disease? Did you notice that? No one else, everybody else was fine. The churches, you better stay away from them. Funny how that worked, wasn't it? Pastors in Canada, beloved, were put to prison. Grace Life Church, pastored by James Coates, beloved, they had to literally meet underground in undisclosed locations in Canada. We're not talking about China. We're talking about the underground church in Canada. It's ridiculous. I could go on. But the point is this, beloved, make no mistakes. The gate is wide and easy that welcomes all. They, unless you worship and serve Jesus, and if that's the point, then there is no room in the broad gate for you. There is no room in the, in the wide open spaces for you. As the old saying goes, this town ain't big enough for the two of us. You know, I think a lot of conflicts in the West could have been avoided if they just would have built their towns bigger. But there's no space for you in the culture if you truly believe and follow the grace and the, and the commands of Jesus Christ. Make no mistake. Jesus is not selling you a bill of goods here. He's telling you exactly what it's gonna be. The gate is narrow. There's one way. And the way is difficult. You will face pressure. You will face. They will hate you. Why? Because they hated Jesus Christ. That may not build a big church, but it will build a strong church. It will build a church that is dedicated to him. They don't understand it. This way is so difficult. Why do we walk in it? Why do we walk in a way that will possibly cost us our lives, that will possibly call, bring all this pressure that'll have us rejected in society, called bigots and, and haters and all of this stuff? Why do we give up all of this? Why do we sacrifice so much? Because Jesus is worth it. He is worth it all. And that's why he says here, the gate is narrow the way is difficult, but it is the way that leads to life. Eternal life. And John, when Jesus preached a hard sermon, something like this, in John chapter six, all those huge crowds, 5,000 people, he had, just, he had just filled their bellies with food. He gave them, he made them feel good. He made them satisfied. He gave them all of those creature comforts. And then Jesus preached a sermon and they said, this is too difficult and they walked away. And Christ looked at his disciples and said, will you leave too? And I love what Peter says in verse 68. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. He understood, at least at that point, he understood that it was more than my experience. It was more than my comfort. It was more than my pleasure. This was a matter of life and death. 
And Peter chose the narrow gate and it cost him his life. Beloved, do you know that Christ has the words of life? That there is no one or nowhere else you can turn to Enter by the narrow gate. Do not delay because there are few who find it. There are few who find it. What's he saying there? What's the ratio here? Beloved, Jesus is not giving us a ratio, but he's telling us that, that if you are going to come to Christ, there must be intentionality. Did you notice that slight change of words? Few are those who find it. There must be intentionality. We must, we must repent of our sins and turn to Jesus Christ in faith. We don't get in by the bootstraps of our parents. We don't get in by the legacy of our family. We don't get in because for somehow, some way, we are a, a civically Christian nation, whatever that means. We only come to Christ by repenting of our sins and believing that he is the only answer. He is the one who gives us eternal life through his death and resurrection. Why so few? Because you must submit to Christ as your Lord and you must turn to him for forgiveness of your sins and you must follow him. So many people don't want to do that today. I'm okay, you're okay, let's all gather around a campfire and hug and sing Kumbaya. It'll make you feel good. It'll give you experiences. It'll make you feel great and you'll be feeling great all the way to hell. Jesus has the words of life. Will you answer and respond to his words in saving faith. We have a couple of boys who have done that, a few boys who have done that, and we're going to provide, they're going to declare their faith to you this morning in baptism. So we're gonna get ready for that, but let's, maybe there's someone else here who you need to answer from your heart this morning. You need to respond to the words of Christ. You need to know that Jesus died for your sins. You must admit that you're a sinner and you must believe in Christ alone for your salvation and follow him. Beloved, this is the narrow path. And this is what we say at Calvary. We, we want you to live the faith. We want you to share. We want you to know the faith. We want you to live the faith. We want you to share the faith. Why? Because that's the narrow way. The broad way is believing the lie serving the idols of the age and practicing the evil practices of the age. We want you to know the faith, live the faith, and share the faith. And that's what we're training each and every one of you to do as a part of Calvary Baptist Church. We want you to know it, we want you to live it, and we want you to share it with one another in fellowship and with the world in evangelism. And when you come across the Broadway in apologetics, right? Right. Beloved, are you doing that? Are you walking on the narrow way? You gotta be on the narrow way if you're gonna walk on the narrow way. Enter by the gate, come through Jesus Christ and then follow him in a lifetime of discipleship and lordship.
Our Father, we thank you so much for these truths. We thank you so much for the narrow way. And I pray, Father, if there's one here this morning, I don't care how long they've been to church. I don't care how much righteousness they think they have of their own. I don't care how much merit they think they're, all they're doing is storing up wrath for themselves. But Father, you offer them an opportunity just by virtue of their being here this morning, you offer them an opportunity to come to you in salvation. Lord, I pray they'll heed the call. I pray they will enter the narrow way. Briar has done it. Jennings has done it. Witt has done it. And Father, perhaps through something that has been said, or perhaps through this visual gospel that's about to be displayed three times, Lord, I pray that you will enliven and, and open the eyes of someone here who may be blind. And maybe today they will come to know you as Savior. It is in your name we pray. Amen.